invite you now to open your Bibles in the book of Prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 25. We'll read the whole chapter, Isaiah 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Listen and receive with faith. This is the word of God to us. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of wage wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be sad on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his, in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the, skills, this, together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his wall he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust." The oldest game. I was first introduced to the concept of the oldest game, as it, as it is called, in the 1980s best-selling novel, The Sandman, by British author New Gaiman. In the early chapters of his fantasy novel, the protagonist, Morpheus, the king of dreams, please bear with me, must challenge a supernatural being named Corazon for a powerful magic, magical item stolen from him many years ago. As he tells the story of this duo called The Oldest Game, Gaiman describes a match between those two figures without explaining the rules or what this game consists of. He just starts describing it. I will do the same now, but I imagine you can easily pick it up as we go. Here's a match of The Oldest Game. Corazon goes first, and he makes the first move. I am, he says, 
a dire wolf, prey stalking, lethal prowler. Morpheus fights back. I'm a hunter, horse mounted, wolf stabbing. Corazon, I'm a serpent, horse biting, poison toothed. Morpheus, I'm a bird of prey, snake devouring, talons ripping. Are you following? You probably get the gist of it at this point. Corazon keeps going. I'm a butcher bacterium, warm life destroying. Morpheus, I'm a world, space floating, life nurturing. Corazon, I'm a nova, all exploding, planet cremating. Things escalated quickly. How can you counter that? Morpheus, I am a universe, all things encompassing, all life embracing. Good enough, maybe. Corazon, I am anti-life, the beast of judgment, the dark at the end of everything. Sensing his impending victory, he taunts, taunts our protagonist. Will you, what will you be then, Dream Lord? And this is the one million dollar question. What trumps death? The final enemy, the last breath, the dark at the end of everything. Who can disperse the gloomiest of all clouds? Who can deny being scared by it? We might be tempted from every now and then not to think about it. We might employ all our efforts to avoid facing it, but it is there waiting for us. Will it have the final say? How can we then, who serve the God who created all living things and the Savior who says he is the bread of life, face the reality that we will all die. Is there any answer to that? Is there any way to prepare? Is there any hope? Our text this evening that we just read deals with these questions, issues, and fears. In this prophecy by Isaiah that sometimes looks like a psalm that would also fit in the book of Revelation, we will look to the future to understand our present. Most importantly, at the center of this mix of many biblical genres, we will find the promises of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In sum, take this into your heart tonight, sisters and brothers. Jesus Christ is the victorious helper of his people. Again, I repeat this because it's the most important thing you could hear today. Jesus Christ is the victorious helper of his people. We will see that in two points. First, if you are in Christ, you have a helper in ages past and a guard while troubles last. Again, if you are in Christ, you have a helper in ages past and a guard while troubles last. Isaiah's prophetic psalm or his poetic prophecy 
has a peculiar shape of what theologians in the academic world call a sandwich. Verses 1 to 5 and 10 to 12 parallel each other by discussing similar themes in a way that supports the main point in the middle, verses 6 to 9. So we will start from the outside, looking verses 1 to 5, 10 to 12, and then we're going to investigate the middle section later. As we can see from verse 1, the entire section is built on a happy fundament. Why is the prophet happy? Verse 1 gives us more than enough reasons. You are my God. That is, Isaiah, a man of unclean lips, as he famously describes himself in chapter 6, has a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. You have done wonderful things, he says, intervening miraculously in history to preserve the people you have chosen. This God's plans were formed of old, faithful, and sure, Isaiah says. He has a plan from the beginning. And when he promises, he's faithful to deliver. The rest of the chapter only expands on these great and wonderful ideas that make the prophet happy. So let's press on. The remainder of this first section, paired with verses 10 and 12, show us how God was, is, and will always be faithful to his promise to exalt the humble and humble the exalted. This is the common thread uniting these verses. Isaiah, as you can see, uses imagery of strongholds, shelter, fortifications, to compare how God protects his own and destroys those who oppose him. This becomes very clear if you read again verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, God is a stronghold for the poor and the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. On the other hand, in verse 5, He's the wall that fends off the breath of the ruthless and the shadow that subdues the heated noise of His enemies. We find ourselves then in this text through these images of thunderstorms and unremitting heat. Aren't we all stumbling through this, stumbling through life in this world, assailed by all sorts of enemies from all sides, looking and hoping for some kind of shelter? Aren't we all looking for some rest? Are you not being constantly assaulted by the ruthless breath of your own sins? Biting your heels, nagging your soul, reminding you that even as a redeemed saint, you're still a sinner that still falls too short of God's standards of righteousness. For all the comfort we get when we worship, when we're worshiping God with our sisters and brothers here on the Lord's Day, don't we all feel subdued by the heat of this oppressive world? that is growing more and more hostile to those who affirm that Jesus is Lord when you go back to our routines on Monday. Unfortunately, even for some of us, the hostility we face can even sometimes come from those who vowed and promised to protect us. 
sometimes even in this place that calls itself the house of God. Take comfort then, Christian. The other side of the coin in this outer sections of Isaiah 25 is that we can praise our God as, he, as Isaiah did because he destroys the strongholds of all who oppose him and his people. In verses 20 to 12, Isaiah uses Moab, one of the nations that surrounded and opposed Israel, as shorthand to speak of how God will deal with the proud and the arrogant. He will strike them down. And when they flap their arms around trying to fight back like a swimmer, he says, God will lay low their pompous pride together with the skill of his, hand, his hands. And the high fortifications of their walls, he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is your God, brothers and sisters. This is the God who heard the cry of his people in the slavery in, in the book of Exodus and acted upon remembering the promises he made to them. This is the Savior, Lord, that Mary sang to and about in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. He is the one who, says Mary, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. This is the God who came to earth who was incarnate, who became one of us to proclaim in his word, words that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For he came not to call the righteous, but sinners like you and I. In sum, as we sang earlier, if you are in Christ, you have a helper in ages past and a guard while troubles last. You can praise and magnify the Lord together with the prophet Isaiah because he has promised to be our shelter and a stronghold. And he who promised is faithful, says the book of Hebrews. The only problem, if you just look at these verses, is that this is not how the story ends, is it? While we may find refuge under the shadow of God's throne, in the end, as we said in the beginning, we will, we will all lose the last fight. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon explained to us this dilemma, so to speak. He says this, It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. This is an evil in that all is done under the sun, that the same event, and you know which event he's talking about, happens to all. The dark, the dark at the end of everything comes for everyone. How can we answer that? This question leads us to our second and final point this night. If you are in Christ, you have hope for years to come and an eternal home. If you are in Christ, 
you have hope for years to come and an eternal home. On verse 6, Isaiah shifts gears and starts talking about the future. After looking back to God's plans formed of old and how he had protected his people so far, now he starts talking about a specific future day. This middle section of chapter 25 is a description of what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. This is a day when God would come to avenge his people and destroy his enemies once and for all. At the core of this chapter, through the pen, this chapter, through the pen of good old Isaiah, the Spirit of God lifts up the curtains and allows us to take a peek at the end of all things, the last of all days, the day of the Lord. And if you are unsure of what the future holds for those who wait for that day, let me tell you something. What a day that day will be. It starts with food and drinks, if you follow verse 6. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Rich food full of marrow, aged wine well refined. In some, it is delicious, rich, fat food, full of rich fat, harmonized with the finest, well-aged, old, fine wine. Did he mention it was a very rich dinner already? Isaiah is clearly hacking his brain to find all the qualifiers he can find to express how fine this banquet will be. And why would they be around a table celebrating, eating, and drinking? Let us read again verses 7 and 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Before we can experience the joy of God's great feast, something must be done about the universal curse. As we know all too well, at the end of every pathway, the green reaper awaits us. The threat of that cold hand's grip tarnishes every last bit of happiness we might find in this life. Right now, I know for a fact that some of you are grieving recent losses of old ones. Some of us might be mourning for a while, for a long time. You all know that Maria and I still are in that process. But God, but God, on that day, will swallow death. He will not merely remove it. He will envelop it in such a way as to destroy that shroud that hangs over all of our heads. He will disperse the night's gloomy clouds and put death's dark shadows to flight. He will 
wipe away all of your tears. He will remove from His people their reproach. Not only, yes, did their sin and disobedience bring them shame in the eyes of the nations, but so also did their stubborn faith in God and their refusal to violate His laws brought reproach upon them. Many times they were ashamed of that. But on that day, as the nations turn towards Zion, all the shame, failure, and loss will be made up for. They have waited and waited and waited. We will join them in our lifetime of waiting. And then, on that day, we will sing and be merry together, for the wait is over. Verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The famous American theologian Woody Allen once said famously that he was not afraid to die. He just did not want to be there when it happened. Now, Isaiah is describing the day death itself will die once and for all. And I'm pretty sure I want to be there to see it happen. The final question then that remains is, how? How do we become a part of this banquet? How do we avoid being cast on the, to the ground, to the dust, as God promises He would do to His enemies on that day, on verse 12? How do we avoid the end to life, the beast of judgment, the dark at the end of everything? At the end of the oldest game, as described by Gaiman, which we begin the sermon with, Morpheus, the dream king, faces this question. What could possibly defeat death? After a while thinking, he just says, I am hope. His enemy, Corazon, tries and mumble, mumbles a few unintelligible, unintelligible sounds before finally admitting defeat. He could not think of anything to kill, upset, or overcome hope. How can you be at the final banquet of rich food then? This is what we read in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus Christ is our blessed hope who defeats death and cannot be defeated by it.
This is the promise of the gospel, the good news of salvation for you this night, sisters and brothers. There will be a world-class celebration of Mount Zion on the day of the Lord. Did I mention rich food? Because something happened on another mount, not too far from Mount Zion, 2,000 years ago. On Mount Calvary, the mountain of the school, as it was called, Jesus Christ, our Lord, God incarnate, was killed at an old rugged cross as ransom for many. His bleeding, stretch-out arms are a sign of peace to all nations and an invitation out of God's grace for you, for you to leave the proud Moab behind and find refuge, humbly kneeling at His bleeding feet. If you find yourself, if you find your shelter in the shadow of the cross, if the blood that flows from His pierced side washes away your sin, he will be your eternal stronghold and death will no longer be a threat. Why? Why would death no longer be a threat? Because those who die with him are also raised with him. Him who rose again on the third day because death could not contain hope. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says in John 6. The body of the bread of life and the blood of the living water were torn apart on the cross to give eternal life to all who feast on him. And then on the third day, hope crushed death's head so that those who die in him will live forever in Him also. Now, even if death comes, or better, even when death comes, it will only take us closer to Him. Until that day, when the shroud of death is eternally removed, and we celebrate together with those who went before us at the Feast of the Lamb, that is our hope. He is our hope. He is the hope that kills the dark at the end of everything. He is hope for you. He is hope for me. He is hope for all who give up their pride, who cease trusting in man-made fortifications, which are as strong against death, darkness, and hell as a sandcastle. Come while there's still time, he says. The invitation, the invitation is open. Maybe you're here today and you never actually understood all of this and it feels a little bit embarrassing to admit. Or maybe you have been here for a long time and it's tired and you're tired from facing the heat and the thunderstorms of this world. So tired that you cannot even find any motivation to keep walking. Maybe you just need to be assured that there is hope after all is said and done. Just come, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, and He, our hope, 
will give you rest. Under the shadow of his throne, his saints will dwell secure. If you are in Christ, you have hope for years to come and an eternal home. Come, let us pray. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from the grave and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the way of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin that we may be your faithful people, obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is the head of the church, his body. In his precious and glorious name, we all pray and together we all say, Amen.